Just in and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. You know, there's certain foundational pop culture knowledge that almost all of us carry with us. It's a pop culture scaffold. So what I do is I roll that scaffold in and I say, all right, let me try to clad this scaffold. Let me clad that with the science I'm trying to communicate with you. I embed familiar things with the unfamiliar, and then you have a comfort level with the new information that I'm trying to communicate. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist who's brought the heavens to Earth for millions of people around the world. For years, he's been able to communicate with us about the universe in ways that make the mystery of the cosmos clear and vivid. Clear and vivid enough for people like me to be both awed and delighted. I was really curious to know how he did it. Neil, I'm so glad you're on the show. This is really terrific. Because, you know, I don't communicate science. I try. My job is to help scientists tell their story. But you're a real scientist and a real communicator. (laughs) So you're in deep trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I assure you, you your job is secured. Because there's plenty of folks who who want to ultimately learn science and then try to share it with those who... Who want to know about it? So you got to stay, keep at it with your the institute in and Long Island, yeah, at Stony Brook. Yeah, we that's we, the first we, of its kind. If I, by my I, read, I, maybe I don't really know, but mm-hmm. we've trained not only in the states but around the world over twelve thousand scientists and doctors now. So mm-hmm. we're really making progress. But you, what what is it? What do you have a theory of communication? How what's your engine as you explain science to the rest of us? Th- that's a great word to use, engine. I like that. Uh, I, what I figured out, not on purpose, it just kind of descended upon me. When, when you speak to people, if you pay attention to their attention span while you're, <laughs> while you're speaking to them, there's a lot to learn from it. Do, do their <laughs> eyes drift? Do, do they look sleepy? Do they sl- turn slightly away from you because they want to keep walking and you had stopped them <laughs> in the street? They're body cues that are hugely informative. If you cue on them, uh, do their eyebrows raise up? Mm. Do they, is their mouth agape? Do they ask another question? So this should be indicators to you on how successful or not. You know what's funny? What? 
And, and the title of your book, what was it? It, it, well, it, uh, it, it? What If I understood you, would I have this look on my thank face? Thank you. Yeah, that, well, and not only that, this is why we teach improvisation to start our classes in communication, because the the improv exercises get you accustomed to doing exactly what you just said, to pay attention to the other person. You get so much information from their face and their body. And they're not even knowingly doing that. They're just, it's just autonomic, right? It's right. just, if you're feeling good, you express it. I mean, we're, we're emotional creatures. And so you can definitely cue into that. So you start there. But then I noticed I have a, a difficult concept that I think I'm, I'm in a groove and it's not connecting. So what happened? So then I got to pull out the pop culture scaffold. What, well, no, that's uh. not, there's a b- bit of jargon you yeah. invented, right? You're taking notes on this one. <laughs> the what kind of scaffold? Okay, it's a pop culture scaffold. So here's how I think about it. This is metaphorically described here. So everybody knows most of what comprises a pop culture scaffold. You've heard of the Pope. You know who Donald Trump is. You know Beyonce. Even if you don't buy her music, you've heard of her. Mm. You know, you've heard of the Kardashians. You know that, you know, there's certain foundational pop culture knowledge that almost all of us carry with us, okay? What I do is I roll that scaffold in and I say, all right, let me try to clad this scaffold because you already have the core knowledge mm. of it. Let me clad that with the science I'm trying to communicate with you. Like what? What would be an example of that? <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm trying to describe to you the Coriolis force. Okay. This is a little obscure, all yes, right? Uh, the, the Coriolis force is so connected to the idea that if you go below the equator, your toilet runs backwards. <laughs> it's something, something like that. They wouldn't say it runs backwards. They could say it runs forwards. Well, they, they, don't, they don't know what's going on up north here. <laughs> So you 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 recited the sort of the comical version of it, like, right? That you, just and one it, step across the equator, it, 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 water swirls down the hole in in the opposite in direction, the opposite direction from what we're accustomed to yes, up here. But you need huge systems for this to honestly to, to manifest honestly in the experiment. You can't just take one step across the border and then claim that this works. It has to be a large system. And in fact, that this Coriolis force is strongest sort of in mid latitude. So that's why all your hurricanes are there. Um, uh. Hurricane can't cross the equator. You ever think about this? Whoa, because, no kidding. Yeah, because be, of this. Well, well be, correct. Because north of the equator, hurricanes rotate counterclockwise. South of the equator, the cyclones, whatever they call them, rotate clockwise. So in trying to rotate the right way, they just get weak and They fall get weak apart. and disappear at the equator. That's correct. Wow. So now, how do you attach that to the scaffold of oh, popular yeah. culture? <laughs> so I say, oh, you know, there was a Cincinnati Bengals uh, football game that I caught by accident as I was channel surfing, waiting for a movie to begin. They were in overtime. And then it went into sudden death. And uh, and the Bengals wanted to kick a, a 50-yard field goal. That's very long, okay? If they kick it and get it, they win. So they kick it, and it went up, and, the, and it tumbled. It hit the left upright and careened through the posts for the win. I did the calculation, looked at the orientation of that stadium, looked at its location on earth, and I happened to know that the winning field goal of the Cincinnati, Cincinnati Bengals was aided by a one-third of an inch deflection to the right because of Earth's rotation. The point there is 
you, I know you're interested in football because so much of the country is. And now I bring a bit of laws of physics into it. And so after I tweeted that, by the way, when that had happened. Did you, did, is this just a, a, a way to get me interested or did you actually calculate this? No, no, no. So I, it's, I have some calculations in my utility belt because you want to be overprepared for something because you don't know what you're going to encounter or what the knowledge base will be of the person you're having so the conversation. So you were calculating with. the spin of the ball? No, no. So the, the spin of the ball doesn't matter. Uh, it matters for other things, but not for this calculation. Yeah. What matters is how long is it airborne uh -huh. and is the ball going north-south? Uh. If it's going north-south and it's airborne for three seconds or whatever, I forgot what my calculation showed, that will tell you how much it will deflect. And that's what clouds will do moving through the air. That's what any, that's what missiles will do. If you want a missile shooting north-south and you're the military, you have to factor in a Coriolis force to make that happen. In this fact, there's a famous case of the British yeah. going, wage, they already knew about the Coriolis force for their long-range missiles. They went to the southern hemisphere and all their missiles missed badly. They forgot to flip the mathematical sign in their equations to have the Coriolis force correct in the opposite direction. When was this? I forgot which war it was. In the last hundred years, the Brits went south to try to, to fight a war. It's a, a modern enough war so that the missiles w would go long range. You and know, that's a good indication you should stay in your own neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to be a bully, you can stay on your own block. <laughs> yeah, bully people you know. <laughs> So it sounds like you follow the idea that you don't need to tell them everything, but you very get perceptive. enough to get them interested to know more. Very perceptive, because so many people, especially academic professors, they're put in a situation where they want to teach something on impromptu, but they, they feel like they got to do the syllabus thing. Yeah. No. No, the person standing there listening to you in the street. You don't have to be complete. Yeah, we when get, they sign up for a course, then you can make an them expect learn to, and mathematics. For the and, yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't. They won't leave because they won't get their money back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the guarantees they're going to work no matter what. So this is the difference between lecturing and communicating. Yes. Anybody can lecture at the front of the room, face the chalkboard or the whiteboard, whatever they use today, without actual reference to whether you're communicating. But you've got you've got uh, an ability that not everybody has. You're a funny guy. Well, I, How, what's the role of humor in when you when you're communicating? I deeply respect comedy as an art form, mm. and that's a big part of your professional career. I mean, weren't you a comedian fundamentally before you no, anyone called I, you no, an actor? No, I've always been an actor. Is that right? Okay, yeah. but you have, you always had good comedic timing. So yeah, well, I I love I've always loved doing comedy. I I grew up at the age of two. I, my earliest memory is two, standing in the wings watching burlesque comedians. Oh wow! Okay, and you turned I watched, out okay. <laughs> I, yeah, well, I also watched the rest of the show, so I had an unusual childhood. Mm -hmm. But I always valued comedy. It's it's a, a, a really interesting thing. Comedy do. people are very smart. They're, yes, you got to be smart to be funny. Be smart, and you got to know things to to reshape them and bring them back to the person. So yes, uh, I. You know, if there's a great movie out, but there's a comedian who just put out the hour special, I'm going to watch the comedian. Mm. And I learn new ways of being entertaining, mm. uh, the rhythm of their storytelling, and I try to fold that in. So, yes. You love to communicate to the public. Well, I, I get that impression. Let me say that differently. 
Um, I, when I'm tasked with it, invited on a talk show, on a podcast, if I'm tasked, this doesn't count because we are talking about communicating. So I'm talking about other shows where you communicate, where I'm, when I'm asked about a thing where I have to communicate the thing. Mm-hmm. Hardly, I'm hardly ever asked about the act of communicating. So this is a very special and rare podcast for me to be mm, on, great. by the way, because I get to share some of these tactics. I embed familiar things with the unfamiliar, and then you have a comfort level with the new information that I'm trying to communicate. And this, I think it has worked. And I ended up doing this without knowing. I think it was my sensitivity to what was working. And I, one day I sat down and said, my gosh, that's what I'm doing. But you know what it requires, dear sir? You got to spend some hours every day watching the crazy TV shows that everyone else is watching. <laughs> so you, you know what references You, you got to watch the football game. You got to watch the World Series. Don't have to watch all games. Watch a few. Look at some of the great players because people talk about them at the water cooler. Look at what the social media trends are doing because people are talking about it. When you confront those people, that will be current for them. Mm, and that's if you don't, a really interesting idea. And yes, so I would say... 20% of my life is familiarizing myself with what other people care about, whether or not I care about it. Hmm. And you would ask me, I re- now remember what you had asked me. You asked, you'd commented that I must really enjoy it. I, I think about it differently. It's, if I'm asked to communicate, I might as well try to be as good at it as I can. Hmm. If that's the, the job of the moment. I mean, why not? I spend so much of my life contemplating the universe, the least I could do is contemplate how to communicate. And on my very first invitation to Jon Stewart when he was on The Daily Show, you know, he's a comedian, he's smart, he's very current events literate, you know, famous for having people deer in the headlights. The politician would come in and want to give their boilerplate, and he would ask them questions through the back door around the side, and they would just be stumped. And I said, I'm not going to be stumped. And he'd be throwing a comedic quips in the middle. Yeah. And, and people would be stumbling over the comedic quips. I said, that is not going to happen to me. I watched a series of his shows. I timed how many seconds he would give you to talk. Oh, Before that's he great. would interrupt with a comedic quip. And uh, what did it turn out to be? It was about be? seven seconds. Seven seconds. Yeah, one, two, three, yeah, four, five, six, about seven. And that was the average. Of course, there was variation. So you can't start out with any throat clearing. You got to you come in with the goods. <laughs> so I said, I've got to put out a sound bite that fits in seven seconds. Then he interrupted with interrupts it with a quip, and then we have the funny quip and a complete thought. Yeah, that are on the table, and I'm not going back trying to fill it in. I'm not flustered that I didn't get my point across, and so the rhythm of the host. Is everything. Otherwise, you're going to go there and just give your, 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 your boilerplate. You're not, you don't fit in with the moment. I was once on a, on a show where I was, it's on HBO. I was at the limit of my coolness. <laughs> I was, <laughs> what I, do you mean? I was Why? the only person in the studio with a button-up shirt. It was very hip-hop. Everybody had the hat on crooked from the producer, the writers, <laughs> the directors, the sound, the lighting. And I'm there, the scientist, in this hip-hop show. Yeah. And it was like, oh my gosh. They're going to find me out. And I'm not going <laughs> to. So I'm trying to hand with them. I'm, one of them is from the Bronx. So I'm from the Bronx. So it was the Bronx in the house. That got me like a little bit into the show. And at one point they asked me, um, who's my favorite member of the Wu-Tang Clan? Oh, wow. I'd be stuck there. Well, I said, but I, I quickly, it's like, okay, 
I only know one member. So let me give that name. So I said, oh, it's the Jizza, of course. They said, oh, good, good. <laughs> but they didn't know I was drawing yeah. on a supply of one. <laughs> so, and did you turn that into science? <laughs> no, I tried. I tried to do that at every turn. And you'd be surprised how much science there is that's, that's attachable to, to pop culture. This is why on my podcast that you so graciously agreed to, I had fun um, with to you. agree when, when your book came out on – uh, what I have this look on my face um, that turned out to be one, a very successful podcast for us. With, so thanks for agreeing to have that interview be on the podcast. Thank you. This was somebody, at the 92nd Street Y. Yeah, somebody just stopped me on the street yesterday and said he, he enjoyed that podcast. Oh, excellent, yeah. excellent. Well, so I'm helping to make you famous. Yeah, yes. I'm so much more famous now than it was before that podcast. <laughs> so, so, um, so in it, uh, so what was I going to say about that? Oh, so, uh, uh, the podcast, what we do is my interview in the podcast and for the version of it that lands on television is with a well-known person. But the show, when we cut it together, I have academic experts at the table mm. analyzing subject matter that came up in the conversation mm. with the celebrity type. And why? Because so for this, for Star Talk, you come for the celebrity, but then you stay for the science and the analysis. Yeah. So... Uh, but for you, they come for the science. Well, no, I mean, I'm just saying, we also interviewed, um, um, who's the one with the most number of Twitter followers? It's, uh, uh, um, most Twitter followers. Lady Gaga. Look close. <laughs> you can see, you're going into your pop culture. Yeah. <laughs> who um, is, who? Uh, Katie, um, Katie. Katie Perry. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Katie Perry was a guest on Star Talk, And... So, well, how do we spin that? Well, she wrote a song about uh, making love to an alien. So I just wanted to, so we <laughs> had a did. segment <laughs> on what would alien anatomy be like <laughs> and what <laughs> in the show. And is that even realistic? Uh, so there, there's science in everything. That's all I'm telling, that's all I'm saying. It's true, there is science in everything, and most of us are awed by that when a good science communicator can show it to us. But sometimes science discovers things that make people nervous. Sometimes when science pulls back the carpet, there are things underneath it that are a little scary. What then? I ask Neil about that when we come back. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson. 
Let me ask you something. What about what's what the public is sometimes worried about, I think, which is the responsibility of scientists not to investigate things that turn out to hurt us? I mean, Marie Curie hoped that her work on radiation, for which she won a Nobel Prize, would lead to cancer treatments and save a lot of lives. She also died from radiation poisoning. Right. And... Uh, and so have many other people when you think it's been turned into weapons. So do you feel that you have an obligation to worry about the consequences of what you discover when you try to figure out nature, or is it just your job to figure out nature? That's a terribly important question that isn't asked often enough. So here's the, here's the problem with that uh, concern. There's a, there's a divide in the road, and the divide in the road is are you a scientist tasked with making weapons? Mm -hmm. And what is your moral compass in doing so? Are you a scientist just exploring the frontier that later on happens to have applications in warfare? Mm. These are two very different activities con conducted by a scientist. In my recent book, Accessory to War, the subtitle is The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the military. And that sounds a little ominous. It does because in retrospect, the word accessory to war, accessory is a legal term uh, when yeah, you commit a right, crime. Right. You, you, you drove the getaway car. Right, drove the getaway car. So I didn't mean it in the sense of a crime. I meant it in the sense that, no, we didn't, we didn't make the weapon. Maybe we did design the car that you used. Maybe we did drive the car away from the scene, but no, we didn't. And the Manhattan Project during World War II. Okay, so now this, I'm, I'm, I'm working my way there, so you're ahead of me. So much, much of my understanding of war was shaped growing up in the 1960s. And your show, MASH, was, was a 1970s gift to us all, which exposed us to sort of war um, and you know, uh, Korea, but mostly the Vietnam War were television wars. And so you see war. And for me at the time, war equals bad. There was no good war. What, what do you mean? Why would war ever be good? And that's my starting point in thinking about conflict. When I researched for the book, then I realized, no, wait a minute. There's statues of war heroes of all the other wars, of the Revolutionary War and the uh, Spanish-American War and the Second World War, uh, soldiers astride a horse holding weapons. And I'm thinking, somebody must have felt good about those wars because these are proud statues. Mm. Maybe not all war is bad. Let me think about this more deeply. And then you realize, no, not all. If it's 1930s and Hitler is rising and... Are you going to stand by idly? Hitler invades Poland in 1939. Or are you going to say, we need to stop this? Civilization needs to stop this. It is our obligation. Mm. So you enlist, you become a soldier. If you're a scientist, what do you do? You give your, your intellectual capital to the war effort. This is what spawned the Manhattan Project. Einstein started the Manhattan Project. Little known fact. His letter to Roosevelt said, it looks like Hitler has got physicists and he's trying to make a bomb of unprecedented power. We cannot let that happen. We have to get a bomb before him. Boom. 
Bad, boom, bad boom, word. Sorry. Boom is shorter to the point. Sorry, sorry. Bada bing. <laughs> <laughs> Bada bing. Uh, we launched the Manhattan Project. Where the moral compass sets in is, all right, by 1944, Manhattan Project is still getting research, and we learn Hitler really isn't where we thought he was with his bomb research. 1945, the Third Reich is collapsing. So, okay, we don't really need the bomb anymore. Do you walk away? Or are you just a curious physicist and said, this is cool science, heavily funded. I want to do it anyway because I want to see if we can do it. Or do you say, it's a weapon, it's my country, I want to defend it with the best weapon we can. This is where the moral compass sets in. There's an interesting take on this, I think, in Richard Feynman's experience during the Manhattan Project. He said that he got so excited, and so did most of the people working there, that they just wanted to solve the problem. It was a scientific nut to crack. And here's what happens. Normal science doesn't get funding on that level. Yeah, right. So right. when you get military funding for science and you really are interested in the frontier, but you don't care what then happens, if you know the people funding your work is the military, you can't be so naive as to think that at the end they don't want a bomb out of you. That'd be too naive, They right? knew they wanted the bomb, but when he saw what, what the bomb did, he got very depressed and went, went into a decline emotionally mm. as a mm-hmm. result. It, it, it suddenly hit him. It wasn't just the thrill of solving the problem. There was a product at the end that was going to really hurt people. Correct. So what I learned was my historical brethren, the astrophysicist of yore, uh, decades ago, centuries, millennia, we've been handmaidens to military conquest. No, we didn't build the bombs, but we helped them navigate. We know where the stars are in the sky and what you can see from different parts of the earth that helps you know where you are on earth. Mm. If you're going to build an empire, a seafaring empire, you're going to want to know where the enemy is, where the promontory is that you'll crash your ship. You want to know all of this. There's been an astronomer on board every one of these ships or someone trained in navigation by an astronomer. Uh, take the example of Captain Cook. He explored the, the South Pacific. He's a Brit. By the way, you know why he went to the South Pacific? There was a transit of Venus that was, was taking a, place. A, a transit, transit of, of Venus. This is when Venus in its orbit around the sun comes exactly between us and the sun. So you see this black dot work its way across the disk of the sun as Venus passes exactly between us. Happens once every couple of hundred years. I forgot the exact date, but it's around that infrequent. And he went down to look at it? He was on assignment from the government. Ah. So this is where the plot thickens. Uh, if you make that measurement, you will learn very interesting things about the solar system, the scale of distances between and among the planets. So it's a scientific expedition. Fine. That's what the top sheet says. Flip it over. Oh, by the way, psst, psst, while you're down there. Here's some navigation tools we just perfected. Use these to map every new coastline you find and bring back that information. So they could conquer it? That's what he did. So within two decades, Great Britain took control of Australia, New Zealand, Tasmania, Fiji, the Cook Islands, all of those countries and more. Take a look at their flags. They've got the Union Jack as an insert on them. It's all because of his voyages to the South Pacific. So does the scientist have control 
over what their government does with their discovery or invention. We publish in peer-reviewed journals that are publicly readable. So if I do something that's, I'm not hired to make a weapon, I'm hired, I, I, I wanna just explore. Oh my gosh, I just made a discovery and the, the military looks over the picket fence and says, we can use some of that. But I can tell you that in astrophysics, I don't control what they take from me. But I can, in principle, control what I use from the military. As, as liberal anti-war as we are as a community, because we're mostly academics and academics are that, if something shows up on the other side of their picket fence that got declassified and it's going to help our work, we say, yeah, give me some of that. And, and one of them is Project Keyhole. Uh, the, the military, well, I don't know what that is. Okay, what is Project it's, it's, Keyhole? It's classified. Oh, oh, wait a minute. You'll, you'll have to redact a, this. Just the no. flying saucers thing? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that was Project Blue Book, the flying saucers. So, no, Project Keyhole was a set of telescopes put in low Earth orbit looking down as surveillance telescopes, ah. basically. And we saw, hey, that's a really well-designed telescope. Oh, my gosh. Look how well you've thought all this through. When that came, came declassified, we got one. And you turned it in the other direction. And it turned it up, and it became the Hubble Space Telescope. Oh, great. Not an accident how well that thing worked. Was any of us saying, oh, that was used for military? Now, of course, surveillance is not actively killing people, but it supports operations yeah, that do. Yeah, Right? Like the second Gulf War was completely enabled by space assets. So what about this idea of a space force? Well, that's the is thing. That, is that, does that have military connotations? Completely. Or is that just, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, completely. But the speech is given, the Trump speech followed by the Pence, Vice President Pence speech, they were very sort of muscle testosterone. Here's my bicep. Get out of my, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Space is our lawn and you're on it. Get off of it. It was very aggressive in its posturing. But the fact is, you, we, space has been militarized for 50 years. If you understand militarization as not that it has lasers pointing at Earth or dropping bombs on heads, but that it enables operations on the ground. The first spy satellite that went, ever went into orbit was the beginning of the militarization of space. And we've been doing that since the 1960s. And what did the Air Force figure out they wanted to do? Under whom is the U.S. Space Command? They said, we, in the tradition of knowing where you are on Earth, brought to you by astronomers of antiquity, we want to know where we are on Earth to within very high precision. Let's invent the GPS system of satellites. That is a military project launched by the Air Force, the space branch of the Air Force, and that enabled the second Gulf War, 2003, to operate efficiently and with very high knowledge of targets in day and night. Mm. And the, the command and control of the ground, land, sea, and air invasions were all orchestrated by space assets. So should we have a space force or not? I'm not going to – I don't tell people what they should do. I can tell you that it's not – just because it came out of Trump's mouth does not mean it's a crazy right. idea. Uh, the idea has been around for a while. I even proposed it 17 years ago in a, in a, in a uh, commission that I was appointed to by the White House to study the future of aerospace in the country. And the reply from a four-star general was of the Air Force, we got this. Space is a branch of the Air Force, and so we don't need a different branch. So I said, fine, I'm not going to second guess the general. But if you do pull it away, then all the space activities of the Air Force just get shifted over. It's an accounting shift at, at its most basic form. Then you might add some things to it. I'd throw in asteroid defense. 
Mm. if I had control over the portfolio. That sounds like an enormously important question which keeps getting uh, of put, put aside. It's not just protecting your borders, it's protecting your species. Yes, right. So, yeah. So, and and and, and a, it, to me, a kind of minor problem that inhibits both the military uses of space and the scientific uses of space is all the junk out there. How do you know how to launch Thank you. anything? Throw without- in space junk as a goal of of fixing for the through the space force. The junk affects everything. Not only your spy satellites and other military operations, but it affects your commerce based satellites. Think of um, their entire industries, their entire companies whose business model requires access to GPS satellites, such as Uber. All right. There is no Uber without GPS satellites because that's how it knows where everybody is and who's coming and who's going. So the value of our space assets is measured not only in the cost of the of the satellites, the hardware, but also in the commerce that it enables, the security that it provides. And so if you have debris interfering with that, then as far as I'm concerned, the military is not doing its job. I've seen plots of the debris. Oh, it's... It's it's, it's like, how, how could you find your way Alan, through that Alan, stuff? I think we haven't visit, been visited by aliens because they saw those plots of the debris. <laughs> They're afraid of getting through it. <laughs> it. we're going to a different planet. <laughs> These people live with their garbage. We're not going to this cesspool. <laughs> and is all that stuff traveling fast? I mean, can you get hit with a bolt? Yeah, your... if it's traveling 18,000 miles an hour. So a, a little, paint chip a will little, take your nose off. Yeah, a little piece of something can can knock, knock a hole in your spaceship. Yeah, right? or or damage a critical part of your satellite. Yeah, and render this billion dollar satellite obsolete. Have we had losses like that? Uh, I don't have the full inventory, mm-hmm. but we do have evidence that these particles have hit things, and there is, uh, you know, there've been spacecraft satellites that we bring back, and you look at them, they're pock marks on it. Mm. from debris. So, yeah, it's it's a problem that would need to be addressed ultimately. How would you do it? Take up a giant net and... and <laughs> a little vacuum. How <laughs> <laughs> well, you drag drag it down back? What I, do you do? I don't know. I, I, I Yeah, a net. I don't know. Yeah, what you, you, what you need to do is put it on a downward arc so that it will always encounter thicker and thicker atmosphere, and then it falls out of the... Ex- the atmosphere exponentially. You got to probably make a calculation yes. to make sure you don't wind up with some debris hitting 14th Street. <laughs> exactly. Oh man, this... I care about 15th Street too. By the way, yeah. but fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like 14th Street. So here's my question. Mm-hmm. I've heard you say we're not at the center of the universe. <laughs> there is no center of the universe. Yeah, I tweeted that just. A few days ago. That's maybe it's, where it's, I saw it's one of my top 10 tweets now. Apparently, it really resonated. I said, because the universe has no center, you are not it. <laughs> but all, it seems to me that everything is the center of the universe. And and, and it, it therefore, like nothing it, is. Well, it, you can look like you're in the center, but you're not actually in the center. When, you, when you're a ship at sea, it looks like you're in the center of your own horizon. Yeah. Because the distance to the horizon is the same in every direction. That makes you in the exact center of a perfect circle. Well, let's take that round thing that you're that you're positing, that the, the ship is on a globe. Okay. 
if if we switch it to a balloon and you start with a balloon that is so small, it's infinitesimal. Um, okay. Yeah. Then as it starts to inflate, yeah. the balloon has polka dots on it. Yes. And all the polka dots move farther and farther away from one another. Polka dot galaxies, right? Mm-hmm. But there's no polka dot that's at the center of the surface of the balloon because so every other one would compete for center. Precisely correct. And consider the questions that people don't ask. There are people that get angry when you say the universe has no center. It's got to have a center. Pause. Okay, what is the center of the surface of the earth? It has no center. <laughs> See, people yeah. understand <laughs> yeah. certain questions. Here's one. The universe has no edge. It's got to have an edge. Okay, where's the edge of Earth's surface? You know to not even ask that question. But you know one of the problems is what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, which is what's going on in the head of the person you're talking to. Yes. And I know from my experience listening to the suggestion that there's no center to the universe, I have a problem or have had a problem because I'm always outside of the universe when I think about it. I think of it as a tiny dot that starts to expand but I'm always outside that expansion. Watching the expansion, yeah. Watching the expansion. Yeah. So you, you've got to change my point of view somehow. No, no, I don't. Keep that point of view. You, you're outside of it, so you can see the point where that expansion began. Yeah. If you're on the surface of the balloon, you have no access to that point. Right. But if you're outside of it, the balloon is expanding into your space, right? You're, you're in a higher dimensional space, so you have this luxury of perspective. And you can say, I know where the center of the balloon is. It's down in the middle. Yeah. I can access it, but you can't. Yeah. So yes, the universe has a center. It was where everybody was 13.8 billion years ago. And that's the <laughs> Big Bang. Yeah. You don't have access to that right now. Well, I'm sure that some people are fascinated by this and some people are already asleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm checking to picture people asleep. I'm checking. I, I oh, by think... the way, there's also inflections in your voice. Yes, are you monotone or are you interesting to listen to? Um, I was just listening to athletes today on television. Oh, you said, was it football? You're going to learn football for a change? No, no, they they were <laughs> they were hockey players. Hockey players, all right. And they were very presentable people and had interesting things to say, but they talked in a monotone like this. The way they, athletes mm. talk in interviews always like that. Mm. What do you suppose well, that is? Well, some of it is training. Because if you notice. Most of what they say is completely innocuous. Well, so we tried hard. We'll try better next time. I'm yeah, we came here to play. Came here to play. They played harder. We got to do better next time. They're not going to tell you, why did my teammate drop the ball? I'm so pissed off. <laughs> then all of a sudden, that explodes. Yeah, yeah. It explodes. And people talk about that, and they forget the game. So, And that's why we try to make people open to the people they're talking to. So the real them comes out. And you get animation. You learn more from the person's animation than you do from a recitation. There are more cues of communication. That's right. Yeah. Entirely. And by the way, when I'm on a stage, uh, I give public talks, you know, uh, many times a year. They always say, oh, you're going to stay behind the podium. It's like, what are you – Great. What, what are you, what's wrong with you? Why are you asking me this? <laughs> I, do, I say I have that same discussion. What? What? You want me to stand here for two hours and talk? It, it's a fortress. <laughs> you hide behind the fortress. So, no. And then I, I say, no, I will use the entire stage. Yeah. And what I've done, I, I used to dance. I was yeah. a, a, a performing member of several dance companies in my day. Not anymore. What kind of dancing? So three different 
dance. One was Afro-Caribbean, another was International Latin Ballroom, huh. and, and a third was a, a, a ballet and performance dance, like on Broadway. So do you jazz do you, dance? Do you lend that ability to talks? I've never seen you do that. Oh, so what I do? Well, so when I'm on on the stage, and I feel something. My yeah. body participates <laughs> in yes. that feeling. So it's not just As you say that, you're weaving. I, I did do a little jiggle wiggle <laughs> in the chair as I said that. So think about it. Words can have ver can be very expressive if you're a good writer. Okay? But let's say you're not a good writer, but you still want to communicate. Well, now your facial expressions can aid the words. You can't see the facial expressions of John Steinbeck when you're reading him or uh, or any of these great authors of the past. So they have to rely on their words so you can capture the emotion of the page. If you're not that good, but you're in person, you have your facial expressions to assist the words. If you're on a stage, you have your words plus your face plus your body. And I have the feeling, I, in fact, I try to operate on this idea that even when the person you're talking to is not there in front of you and you can't read their face because you're writing for them and they might read this a year from now or 10 years from now and you'll never see them doing it, you can still make an estimate of what they're going through as you lay down the sentences. Very important comment because I have seen people, stand-up comedians, who have become actors as an actor, you're, you're looking at a camera lens. Let's mm. be honest, okay? You're not looking at an audience. They become actors for a little too long. Then they go back to the stage, mm. and they've lost it all. They've lost the ability to read their audience. They've lost the ability to engage. I, I have found that if I go a long time without the one-on-one -on -one or one-on-an-audience, um, just talking to a microphone or to a camera lens, I don't trust then I'm still connected. So what about when you write? When you write a book, you, Thank you. are you thinking about... Oh, my gosh. Okay, so uh, my previous book to the Accessory to War. Accessory to War is like 600 pages. My previous book, uh, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. <laughs> it's a great title. I, I, I love it because it's like you, you have to pick it up, right? It's yeah. like passing a book that says Neurosurgery in Three Easy Steps. You got to pick it up. <laughs> you got to wonder... <laughs> You got to see what's in there. So what happened when you were writing? Well, I'll tell you. It. So it's a small book, and that book is the distilled essence of every mind-blowing science, cosmic scientific thing I know. Mm. Mind-blowing. So it is the sum of every eyebrow-raising thing. I'm, I'm using these cues. So as you write about it, you're hoping and no, thinking no, of raising their eyebrows. I said, eyebrows. this made a person's eyebrows raise the last right. time I shared this yeah. uh, on the airplane when they learned I was an astrophysicist or at the talk show. I have the data, and I'm using the data to inform the sentence. But not only that, if a sentence is carrying a little too much information, a it's a little weighty, my next sentence is going to be three words long. Yeah, you're thinking about the reaction. I'm thinking about their attention span, and am I carrying them? Every page. And preface, I hate prefaces. Like, why, why spend 10 pages on a preface? Just put it in the damn book if you, it was that important. <laughs> so the preface of my books, they're like one and a half pages long. You start reading. I don't like prefaces either. You turn, oh, it ends right there. Yeah. Oh, of right. course I can read it, right? Well, we've run out of time. Oh, my gosh. The, the, the control room is telling me we have to wrap up. But before we go, that we have seven quick questions. Let's do it. For seven quick answers. Bring it on. What Lightning you, round. Go. What, well, first question, what do you wish you really understood 
I wish I really understood the limits of the human capacity to know and to understand. I wonder whether we are smart enough to actually figure out how the universe works at all. I wonder the same thing. Yeah. Okay, number two, what do you wish other people understood about you? I wish I was better understood what my motives for commenting on science in movies. Ah, people okay. see me as an annoying, but I, I, so I I'm don't, so don't, deeply misunderstood. Feel, feel better, I don't. <laughs> okay. okay. I'm really trying to enhance your movie-going experience when what, I comment on movies. Number three, what's the strangest question someone has ever asked you? What, can I please sign their their shrink-wrapped frozen pig heart that they just pulled from their, <laughs> from their, there's a medical student and he had a pig heart. He just wanted me to sign the freeze, I was signing books and things and up comes a pig heart. Okay. That was the weirdest thing I ever asked. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Go to sleep <laughs> in front of them. <laughs> Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? Oh yeah. People who aggressively think they know something, but actually don't. Mm. I have no patience and no time, especially when they're using it to exploit others. Mm. And I, if I were a superhero, these are the people I would protect the world from. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? Uh, by text. A text, I would, you, you got to prep the pumps. So you say, I've got something I need to share with you. We need to be alone. Fine, let's find a I place. see, and then in person. Yeah, then it's, then it's in person. Definitely in person. Okay, last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Oh, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's an important... I would say um, active dishonesty. Okay, you've been terrific. Thank you so much. Yeah, okay. I, well, really, thanks, I really, as I always do, I love talking. And, and, and the same here. You, and we've been friends for a while. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for being on All the right. show. Bye-bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Neil's latest book is Accessory to War. Neil and his co-author, Avis Lang, explore the centuries-old relationship between science and military power. And they talk vividly about how science, especially astrophysics, has been used in warfare. Neil is a prolific and admirable science communicator. He's helped raise awareness around the world of the importance of science and the wonder of nature. You can find out more about Neil by going to the Hayden Planetarium website at haydenplanetarium.org slash Tyson, T-Y-S-O-N. And if you're in New York, check out the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History. Neil's just one of the many stars of that show. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. 
Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Mark Marin. Mark tells me that his own long-running podcast, WTF, has saved his life. This thing has saved my life. It's reintegrated me with my community. It's reintegrated me, you know, with my ability to to empathize and listen. Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's gotten me out of my own head. And, you know, if I'm experiencing that as the guy running the show, the people that are listening to it are experiencing that as well. Listen in as Mark Marin and I celebrate the endangered art of conversation next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find?